Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Roberts Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Hayley Masters, a recent graduate of Northeastern University First Division 1 ice hockey program. She graduated with honours and a BA in journalism. She has been part of the Canadian Under-18 Hockey Development Program, both Team Ontario Red and Blue, and has a background in coaching and training young athletes. She's recently returned from playing professional ice hockey for EC Bergkampen in Germany. Uh, and as we record this episode from September 2018, attending Harvard's Graduate Extension School in Psychology. So welcome on to the show, Haley. Thank you so much, James. I'm excited to be here. So before we delve into today's episode, Haley, can you talk about, obviously... Uh, I know most people would associate ice hockey with Canadians, but what was the kind of the driving factor for you wanting to get to the sport in the first place? Um, I started playing hockey when I was, you know, I think it was a year, a year or two years old. Uh, My dad played hockey growing up. Uh, I had two older cousins that played and it kind of just, you know, my parents said, you know, here's a, here's your first pair of skates. And, uh, I fell in love with the game when I was, when I was really, really young and I played hockey, um, boys hockey specifically growing up. Um, and I just, I mean, it was always competitive and my parents, you know, wanted me to be so well-rounded. And so I played golf, I snowboarded, I played tennis. And so, um, you know, I, I had, you know, my toes dipped in different ponds with, you know, the athletic community, but essentially that was where my passion was. And I, you know, that was the center focus of my athletic career. And I think uh, it took off and I was fortunate enough to play, you know, for Team Ontario. And then I went to a boarding school in Toronto. And so I I moved out of my house essentially when I was 14, which was, you know, looking back pretty young. Um, But again, it was to pursue my passion with hockey. And then uh, following that was was university. So I got to play, you know, in Boston on one of the the top uh, division one teams, which is incredible. And then, you know, it took me all the way to Germany to play in, uh, in the German first league. So I mean, I owe so much, you know, so much of my life to the sport, but it's, it's always been a passion of mine and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for, you know, the overall experiences and the people I've met obviously along the way and just how it's, you know, really, really shaped me as a person and, and been a vehicle for so many different avenues that now I'm, you know, I'm taking on. And you talk there about, obviously, your love for psychology and this is to get your opinion on probably the obsession that the Canadians and say the, the the Northern States of the U S have with this, what you could say to a certain extent, an obsession with ice hockey. Where do you think that comes from? Um, I mean, the, the history of the game, you know, goes way back. And I think, um, I just think it's such a competitive culture and it's such a unique sport. Cause you think, you know, um, 
let's say tennis, for example, you know, it's skating is, is, is such a, a difficult thing to do, I think. And a lot of people don't or can't grasp that until they put a pair of skates on, get on the ice and go, whoa, you know, it's balance, it's technical skills, it's physicality, it's the mental game. There's just so many components not to mention the timing of it. It's fast paced. It's high speed. And in men's hockey specifically, there's contact um, and there's fighting. So it's kind of like a combination of so many different things. And it becomes, you know, I mean, you can obviously develop your skills uh, in any sport specifically, but I think hockey is one of those things that it's, you know, and that's not to say other sports don't require the same, you know, technical skill set um but i think i think hockey i mean it's it's fun it's competitive and it just it takes a lot of you know effort and work and preparation to to really master it and so uh i think the competitive culture whether it's between you know you see in the olympics the u.s and the canadians or you know even in the nhl you see montreal and, and toronto or you know toronto and boston you see these rivalries and it's just such a community um that, that, that really Canada and, you know, the U.S. have have really cultivated around this, you know, this competitive edge. And I think it's kind of like Europe with with uh, with soccer or football, as it's called. And, and when I came to Germany, I didn't understand, you know, the football culture until you go in a stadium and there's 80,000 people that are, you know, absolutely crazy and so passionate about it. And I think, you know, that culture um, is similar to the, to the culture in Canada and the States, and I think, you know, you see the numbers every year increasing of young athletes joining the sport. And the numbers, I mean, let's say the last 20 years, every single year, there's more and more, especially female athletes joining the sport and male athletes joining the sport. And it's, you know, the communities are growing. And I think, you know, the hockey world now is is not just in Canada and not just in the States, but it's going worldwide. And you see this with the Olympic development teams and, you know, they're bringing in Canadians and Americans and specialists and they're growing their programs because it, it is, you know, obviously it's, it's my favorite sport and it's, you know, something that I, I absolutely love. Um, but again, I think it's, it's traveling so far across the world and you, you know, I didn't expect it, but now, you know, China has a, has an incredible development team and there was a two teams that went over from Canada that now were, were playing in China for a full year to develop their Olympic program, but also to, to develop our, you know, our players. And you see, you know, even in the NCAA, you have people from everywhere. You have, you know, Russian students and you have, you know, people from, from all over the globe coming to a, you know, to, to share a common passion and a common goal. And I think you're going to continue to see that, you know, in the next you know, I think throughout history is just the sport is, is so, so popular because of, you know, I mean, how awesome it is, really. And in terms of, I had the opportunity to watch it, the, the well, the winter, the winter game's just gone. Yeah. Can you kind of, for the listeners that possibly didn't have the opportunity to watch it, what are like some of the variations between the men and women's game? Because there is... I, I couldn't grasp it to some extent because the, some of the, the rule changes they've got between the two, you think, well, maybe you could adapt it slightly and then let them still play, whereas that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, specifically um, male hockey or men's hockey is contact. So 
it's, it's body contact. There's a loud checking. And so those are open ice collisions. Or, you know, if someone's up against the board, you can make full contact. Whereas the women's game, there's no contact whatsoever. And that's not to say it's not, you know, if, if you're battling for the puck, there is contact. And it's a very physical sport. But the open ice collisions and the fighting is, you know, it, it doesn't take place in the female game based on the rule set. So I think that's really the only, you know, major difference between men and women's hockey. And I think, you know, I th- because there's no contact in women's hockey, it's genuinely, you know, about speed. And so because you can't make that physical play, and even as a, you know, playing as a forward in boys hockey when I played you'd go down the ice and you're constantly you know fearing somebody making contact because if if you have the puck it's open season anybody can hit you obviously not from behind and there's you know there's rules about how to make a proper hit and and there's you know obviously hitting from behind is is not okay and there's you know different types of head checks that are that are you know not not allowed in either the male or female game um but the girls game, there's, there's no fear because you know, if you have the puck, there's no, you know, it's not allowed. And if, and if someone does choose to to make contact or, you know, uh, you know, engage in that type of physical play, there's going to be repercussions. And that's when, you know, penalties or even suspensions um, will occur. But other than that, the rules are pretty similar. I mean, the men typically play on bigger ice sheets. So the NHL size arenas, um, but that varies because in the Olympics, they play on the same ice, which is, you know, the, the traditional Olympic side is ranks in the females and the males play on that. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's the only real thing that's, that's the difference is the, is the contact of, uh, of male and female ice hockey. But Hayley, you talked about there obviously coming up through the, the male version of the game. From yeah. a psychological state of mind how that's got to have an impact on the individual coming up because if you've got one set of rules and this is how you've been up you've been brought up with it and then it shifts is there kind of a shift you've got to make as an individual to then adapt oh absolutely and I mean I played boys hockey till I think it was 12 or 13 um and I was I was a super tomboy back in the day I, I, I mean I still am but it was that competitive nature and I'm you know, my dad taught me from a young age how to make a, how to make a hit, but how to receive a hit. And at that point, at thirteen, fourteen, the size wasn't an issue. I was, you know, I was I was tall for my age, and so the physical component, you know, I was I was equal in height and weight, approximately, with most of the guys on my team. Um, but again, it was I was, you know, I was trained how to make contact, and my game was was very much revolving around being able you know, to, to take the hits and give the hits. And so when I made my transition to the girls game, I struggled. Um, and even through university, I always struggled with that because if you're going into the corner to battle someone, my first instinct was make the hit, you know, engage in contact, make, make the hit and then, and then get the puck versus the women's game. You go in and you lift the stick and there's that, that initial contact is not made. And so you know, even even took me all the way to Germany to say, you know, the first instinct cannot be make the hit. It's got to be go for the puck. And so that transition, I mean, it, it depended because, you know, even in 
at Northeastern, there were some teams and some referees that would let that go. And it could be, you know, there was games that it was incredibly physical and you'd think that there would be, you know, the referees calling penalties and they wouldn't. And then some referees, you know, you brush up against somebody and it's a two minute, you know, body checking. So, I mean, it really depended, but like you said, yeah, that the mental part of it is just wrapping your head around, you know, the different styles of games. And again, carrying the pockets, you know, in the female game, you're not, you're not, you're not in fear and you're not constantly looking around going, if I receive the puck here, who's, who's two feet in front of me to make that hit. It's, you know, I can receive, you just have more time, I think is, is essentially what it is. Um, but for any, any female athlete, I think that, that has a training in, in, in male or grows up playing with boys, that transition is difficult. And oftentimes they are the, you know, the goon on the team, if, you know, for lack of, you know, a better word is, you know, they're the tough guy. And they're, if, if the, if, if the game becomes physical, you're the first one in there, you know, engaging in it because, you know, you've been trained in it and that's just, that's just part of, you know, my game. And that was, even even when I was getting recruited, they always said, you know, we love your physical presence on the ice. We love how physical you are. And some coaches would say, you know, that's there's no place for that in female hockey, and they'd rather see the finesse and the more talent um, with regard to stick handling and different skill sets. But some coaches, you know, they love the fact that, you know, you can engage in that contact and you can, you know, be respectful of the rules, but also you're trained in that in the sense that, you need to be thinking faster and quicker and the boys game trains that they train that side of, you know, you have to be quick and your decisions have to be a split second faster because if not, someone's coming after you. And so, you know, it's, again, it's, it's based on the referees, the coaches, but for me mentally, yeah. I mean, I struggled that with that my entire career of just saying, okay, Haley, it's not male hockey. If you make contact here, you're going to be in the penalty box the whole game. And there was games that, you know, I'd have 10 minutes or, you know, plus in penalties because I couldn't turn it off. And it was, again, you trust your instinct, you trust your gut, you go in the corner, you make a hit and you're looking going, "Uh oh, this isn't, this isn't boys hockey. This is girls hockey. And that's, you know, that's prohibited. That's not allowed. So. But then it's in terms of, yeah, we could say it's black and white in terms of the rules, but from uh, if we come from the athlete perspective now, you've got kind of a fork in the road in terms of where the athlete can start their career. Right. Do they go into predominantly, be it in most cases, there's only going to be boys hockey that's going to be available. Do they go in that route? Yeah. You have to get into the, foot, uh, into the sport first of all, or do they go into the girls sport, which is happening probably more and more in other sports nowadays and be yeah. say sport specific from then then don't have to overcome that hurdle that you talked about later down the road. But then would you say a little bit that, that it loses its essence of what hockey is and maybe the, they should tweak it slightly because the hits, in my opinion, will not be as as vicious, but then you might disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think essentially it comes down to, I mean, for for young and youth hockey, where you're located is so important. Because if you're located in the middle of, you know, northern Ontario, and there's not an established or developed female program, then, 
you know, if, if your dad played and you have older brothers or, you know, that's the only place you can play, they're going to play. If that's what they they want to do and they want to engage in the sport of hockey, then they're going to play on a boys team until, you know, either they decide that, yeah, it's just a hobby and we'll just play on a house league team, which is a, which is the lowest level. And that sometimes could be co-ed um, or they're going to take their game to the next level. And at that point, um, there's a cutoff and I think it's 13 years old. If you want to play on team Canada or team Ontario, um, you have to be registered with the, with the Ontario women's hockey league. So you can't be playing boys hockey and then come back and play on the female team Ontario. So there are rules and regulations that now have been established for that purpose, but youth hockey, I mean, if, if, if the girl, a lot of the young, young girls don't want to play with the boys. They want to play with their friends and it's more of a social event. And that's totally, you know, that's totally fine. I, I coach at a, at a summer camp and the girls, you know, you find 95% of the girls love, you know, the social event, the locker room. And, you know, we get to talk about, you know, this and that. And then there's, you know, the other 5% that say, no, we want to play with the boys. We're competitive. This is what we want to do. And they're talented enough that they can, play with the boys and establish themselves and still develop and not, you know, be less skilled or less talented and kind of fall behind and their development could, you know, be hindered by that. Um, but I think the rules of the female game, I don't think they're going to change. I think if anything, the men's game is taking a route now that, you know, they don't want fighting anymore because of concussions and because of injuries. And they're really taking a step back. And especially with the NHL saying, you know, fighting, there's no place for fighting 35, you know, 40 years ago, it was bench clearing brawls. And you know, there was no, I don't, I don't want to say science or, you know, I guess science behind concussions, but with, you know, with technology today and the research that's come forward about, you know, impact and, and, and the, the devastating effects of concussions, they're trying to remove it or at least minimize it from the game. And the referees are, are, are being very strict about that now at the highest levels. And even in, you know, youth development of you can't make contact to the head, there's no fighting allowed. And so I think the girls game is where the men's game, it's not going to transition completely because there's always going to be contact in, you know, male hockey, but I think they're, you know, they're becoming more strict about the head contact especially because there's so many, you know, whether it's hockey or football or any of these contact sports, you're seeing the repercussions, you know, not, you know, some guys will, you know, it'll end their career early, but 10, 15, 20 years from now, they can't remember their name. They can't, you know, they can't track with their eyes. There's so much damage that's done to the brain in a concussion. And so I think that uh, specifically, if you are a young girl playing boys hockey, you know, you'd hope that a parent would say, okay, their size, you know, they're, they're nine years old. Their size is about the same, their weight. And if she doesn't feel comfortable, obviously, you know, putting her into female hockey, but if she is, I mean, like myself, you know, same weight, you know, same talent level, and you can still develop and grow and not be, you know, injured or, or, or a liability, then, you know, by all means, but I really do think the game, especially for the boys, is going to take a turn in the sense that, you know, they should be stricter on the rules because it's people's health you're dealing with mm-hmm. and it's, you know, long-term effects that, that really need to be, you know, focused and they need to be important because, you know, like I said, you have guys that are, you know, 20 years retired and, and you know, 
facing so many critical health and not just mental, but psychological and physical damage from concussions and from that contact that the male sport, you know, typically engenders. And obviously we touched upon this briefly that you, you, you've gone on to like the exploits of further, uh, further education within psychology. Yeah. When do you think that kind of passion first appeared? Do you think it's re- related and intertwined with that of sport or is that me generalizing a little bit? Um, to be honest, I kind of came about my passion for psychology and more so the mental side of the game and applying psychology to sport. And that was my avenue was, you know, for so long, I never to be honest, cared about the mental side. It was you show up to the arena, you put your equipment on, you go out there and you work hard for 60 minutes and that's that. And then, you know, there was girls on my team that were, you know, that established their, you know, let's say mental game earlier on and they were watching video and they were, you know, they had their routines and they had their, you know, whether it was meditation or whatever you want to call it, you know, their, their pregame rituals. And I'm, part of me, you know, early on in my career was going, what are these girls doing? Just go out there and score goals, go out there and play, you know? But I think it was later on in my college career that I started saying, wow, you know, this stuff works. And we, we were lucky enough to have a sports psychologist that worked with our specific team. And I met with him multiple times and, and him and I established a great relationship because by my senior year, it was, you know, once a week or once every two weeks going in and figuring out strategies for how can I maximize my performance? How can I maximize, you know, sleep patterns and, and just paying attention on purpose to these things. And when I went to Germany, that's really when I said, okay, you know, I don't have, you know, a trainer, I don't have coaches that are, that are, you know, holding me accountable. It's, if I want to maximize, you know, my game, it's on me. And so how can I do that? Well, I'm going to establish a great routine and that it was rooted in, you know, psychology essentially. And just saying, you know, how can I manipulate my brain or how can I manipulate my routine? That's going to benefit me and be most effective towards my performance. And I think it was kind of an organic process, but the more that I, you know, really focused on the the mental side of it and the psychology behind it, the more my game took off and evolved to different levels that I didn't, you know, think were possible. Something as simple as, you know, being on the bench and, and focusing on my breath for 10, just tuning in for 10 seconds and being mindful of it. And that, you know, that alone, you calm down, you can refocus and just, just little things that I was able to tweak, you know, from a psychological standpoint that allowed me to perform at a, at a different level and a level I, you know, I never reached previous to that. So you're telling me, Haley, you had no superstitions whatsoever in your early career then? I mean, putting my equipment on, I always tied my left skate first. I always did, I always went left to right. So I'd put on my left side on first and then my right side. Um, I mean, I tape my stick a certain way. Um, and I always on the top of it had, you know, my brother, my mom, my dad, uh, their initials on it. And I mean, there were certain things, um, specific music that I would play, um, but those were, those were more just feel goods. And, you know, if I'd walk to the arena playing a certain song, it would put me in a mood that, you know, was, was beneficial to me. But then, you know, when I started researching flow states, which I'm sure you're aware of and being able to, you know, create an environment that's conducive for a flow state 
and realizing you can you can manipulate you have you have control over you know the environment to get yourself excuse me into that flow state and once i figured out you know what that environment was for me because it's going to be different for everybody what works for me and what gets me motivated and prepared for a competition or an event is going to be different than what gets you prepared and so when that you know kind of came into fruition of oh wow you know what works for this professional athlete that I listened to a podcast on, or I read a book on what this person does. That's fantastic. But you need to really do some self exploration to figure out what makes you tick, what's going to get you ready and what's going to put you in an optimal environment to get into that flow state. Because, you know, I I've played hundreds and hundreds of hockey games and let's say 1% of those are in your flow state and you don't you you know you often just think oh I must have had a you know a great dinner last night and I got my good eight hours of sleep and I just I must have just played well but if you really break that down you can look into the nutrition behind it you know what micro macronutrients you had the night before what specific playlist did you have on you know did you ice bath did you hot tub what exactly and you can you can I mean by the end of it I got it down to a science of if I want to play in my absolute peak performance this 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 and this need to happen in order for me to get into that state and I was able to get into flow state you know I'd say on the on the you know upside of 80% of my games in Germany we only had I think 30 games in the season which was a lot less than I did at Northeastern but there wasn't too many games that and even if I wasn't in flow state the entire game I would touch into it on multiple occasions during the game and I knew how to get into it. And then I knew how to recover from it because putting your, you know, your body and your mind through that intensity, you know, it would take me two or, you know, I'd say two or three days to, to, you know, mentally and, and psychologically and also physically recover from that. But again, it was, it, it was rooted in the psychology and just having a, you know, a specific routine that was going to allow me to perform, you know, at my peak consistently and constantly throughout my season but some might say Haley, obviously with the the shift patterns that hockey brings yeah isn't it more i from my opinion it would bring more difficulties to be able to stay in that flow state because you've got prolonged periods that you're on and off the ice and I would say it's probably more one of the more difficult sports to be totally engaged a hundred percent of the time. Absolutely. And I think like you said, because it is, you know, you're on the ice for let's say between 45 and a minute and 20 seconds, and then you're off. And, you know, depending on the game, depending on your role in the team, you could be sitting for five minutes, 30 seconds, 10 minutes, or, you know, 15 minutes, depending on, like I said, your role on the team. And so, that was, you know, it is tough because when you're, when you're on the ice and engaged in the physical component of, of actually playing, it's easy to be in flow state. Not easy, but, you know, you're, you're physically and mentally all there. So when you do come off the ice, that was, you know, the, the, the first little while I was figuring out, okay, once I can settle and be on the bench and be, you know, a spectator watching until my turn, you know, comes up next – how can I maintain that level of intensity, but also be recovering at the same time physically and maintaining that mental state of, you know, if you come off the ice, you can't be, you know, 
obviously you need to be hydrating and, and focusing, but a lot of the time I'd come off the ice and you know, you'd be thinking about 10 million things and you get distracted and then you'd go back out on the ice and it would take the first 15 seconds to get back and re-engaged. And so that was, that was again, um, something I, I struggled with at the beginning until I found, okay, coming off, coming off the bench, paying attention to my breath, taking, you know, six or seven really deep focused breaths, hydrating and and I was able to keep my mental, you know, capacity to say, okay, even though your body's in rest mode, your mind is still engaged and you're still in a state where once you get on the ice and once you engage physically, you can return to that flow state. I'm trying to think of examples where there'd be sports that are similar. The ones that come to mind would be basketball, yeah, hockey. It's not it's predominantly team sports but then there's some occasions well i'm probably the likes you can manipulate it in a competitive environment probably in all of them right right i mean i think i mean any sport really it's uh it's it's a con like to keep in flow state whether it's i mean golf you look at golfers for example that's a you know a four hour round of playing 18 holes and you got to be tuned in for four hours i struggle with 60 minutes minus the time i mean out of 60 minutes i'm probably only physically engaged in 30 minutes and of that 30 minutes you know you're not going to be in flow state for that entire 30 minutes you know, once in a while you'll get into it and you'll maintain and you'll be at your optimal flow state. But for a golfer who's playing for four, you know, four plus hours, how do you stay in that flow state for that, for that long? And I think that just comes down to, you know, mental agility and really training and having, you know, repetition with it to say, okay, even if I, you know, come out of flow state for a bit, how can I, you know, still maintain that level of compete and that level of, you know, intensity and that level of focus. But I mean, I think every sport requires, you know, the psychology or the willingness to say, okay, it's not just a physical game. Sports are physical, but the, you know, the mental component to sport is indispensable. And without it, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to excel personally, but you, you know, you look at the best athletes in the world, the best programs, the best teams, mental, you know, mental toughness, mental strength, you know, the mental component of sport is now equal, I would say, to, to the physical component. And you see, you know, professional organizations now hiring, you know, sports psychologists, yoga instructors, mindfulness coaches, because there is, you know, a place for that. And I think, you know, 20 years ago, it wasn't as, you know, today it's backed up by research and science. It's saying, without the mental component and without being completely solid, you know, between your ears, you can't reach that next level. You can't be as successful as, you know, the best athletes in the world because their mental game is on another level. You know? I think this flows nicely into my next question, Hayley. In terms of, obviously we touched upon it. Oh gosh. I think it's about maybe a month or two ago now that you you emailed me in terms of uh, asking me questions. But as you were looking to write the book called The Space Between the Ears, yeah. why, what, you, you probably touched upon it a little bit there. Why do you think it has got such an important place within sport? Um, so the book essentially um, was, it, it started off for me, and I wanted to track how 
I was going to finish my hockey career and my final season and, and try and be the best I could be mentally because I'd never really put an importance or I'd never really focused on the mental side of it. And so it started off kind of this, you know, how was I going to optimize my mental game? And so through the process of that, I started doing, you know, a lot of research on it and listening to podcasts and reading books and, and, and getting the research, the solid scientific research behind, you know, mindfulness is what it essentially was. And that I define that as being intentionally centered in grounded by and on time for the present moment, you know, with, with this radical acceptance and awareness of what you're doing and how you're doing it and just being so open to, you know, feelings and thoughts and emotions, but being able to control that. And so I think, uh, you know, when I was starting this book off, I, I myself was, you know, kind of the blueprint for it. I said, you know, I'm going to take these things that I'm learning and I'm acquiring and the knowledge that I'm gaining and apply that to my game and see what works. And once I kind of got into it, it started flowing and I had, you know, I was talking to friends and, and, you know, different teammates at the time and saying, you know, does this work for you? Does this not work for you? And so, it, you know, my teammates were essentially my little guinea pigs in this, in this mastermind project of saying, okay, so I, I'm identifying what she does and that works for her, but it doesn't work for the girl next to her. And it kind of just became this, you know, this research project for me. And, and the more I started, I mean, I have a journalism background cause that was my, uh, what I studied in university, my BA. And so the writing, the writing came easy for me. It was the application part of it that said, okay, how can I apply? You know, there's so many people that'll say a million different things about whether it's, you know, the mental side of it or nutrition or, you know, proper meditation techniques or different things that work for different athletes. And it was kind of filtering through all of these incredible resources and saying, you know, how can I apply this to sport? Because a lot of the, a lot of the research I did, it had no application to sport yet. It was about, you know, meditation practices and yoga and, you know, even Buddhist, you know, traditional Buddhist practice. And, and the first chapter was essentially, I created a chart that said, what is mindfulness and what is, you know, these, these mental toughness and mental components involved and then the second part of the chart was, and how does this apply to sport? Because without that application, you know, you even let's take, you know, mindfulness or meditation, for example, you know, there is scientifically, you know, scientific evidence that says, you know, this is going to benefit your, your health, your well-being, you know, all these incredible things. But I never found in my research the application to sport. And that's where kind of the, the niche that I, that I found was take all these incredible mental concepts and how to strengthen your mental game and how to deal with adversity and, and, you know, obstacles that athletes face and how to use these incredible psychological backgrounds and, and apply those to sports specifically. And that's really kind of how the, the book or the idea came into fruition and then I, you know, I, I contacted you, of course, and then a few other, you know, people in this space just to see, you know, is this being applied to sport? Are these, you know, interesting concepts? And is this psychology really, you know, can it benefit and be helpful to athletes? And that's when I said this book, you know, shouldn't just be for myself, because I think there's so much, you know, room in, in this specific field to not only help others, but 
you know, mentor others and just share the information that's acquired. And that's why, you know, connecting with you is so fantastic because you have your story and you have, you know, the incredible things you do. And, and yours is a combination, your podcast is a combination of, you know, the nutrition, the psychological barriers, you know, there's so, it's an all encompassing look on, you know, the mental side of sport. And it's not just, again, you don't, you can't just show up and, and go compete. There's a whole nother game that so many people, you know, and so many athletes don't even realize. And if, you know, if that's, if that's what I can do to give back and just share that information with young athletes, because I would have loved to know this stuff when I was entering college instead of, you know, four years after when I'm looking back going, man, if I had just, you know, paid attention on purpose early on, what, what would my career look like and how much different would it, would it have been? And how would I have been able to, you know, better interact with my teammates or, you know, be more coachable or apply these different techniques to be, you know, an all around better athlete, not just on the ice, but off the ice. And I think, you know, that's essentially what, what the book is, you know, when it gets published and when it, when it's, you know, finalized is just sharing that information because, Again, it's their universal concepts and it's, you know, again, it's rooted in the psychology, but it can be applied in so many different ways into so many areas of your game and, and, you know, who you are as a person, not just, you know, in the arena or in the stadium. I think, Haley, my example is probably very, very similar. I I think to my knowledge, in my career, I probably did have that um, idea that, yeah, you just show up and the performance happens, but it probably wasn't until... I would say maybe when I went to university and did sports science and then that love for sports psychology came about and it was a little bit, you could say haphazardly like that trial and error finding ways. Well, what I'm learning on my, on my course, what can I implement into the sport and what can I learn uh, from an assignment point of view or put it into uh, theory, so to speak, from what I'm really living. So I think the two intertwined and I think very much, well, it's made me who I am now and I'm very much, okay, people might be not of the uh, positive approach towards, say, mindfulness. Um, Oh, I can't the other one alludes me. Um, And that kind of stuff, like the more spirit, spirit, uh, spirit, spiritual aspect of what the psychology and all that can bring right i'll probably touch upon it more from my humble beginnings with sport okay i can relate it more uh, and it's probably intertwines a little bit better with fitness and health with the sporting um connotations because in essence it's the same thing so i can probably touch um more nerve or a chord with that person because it's probably more on that wavelength and, and, and thus people are probably more understanding. Okay. Okay. This, you can kind of see the um, significance better right. than say, if I said how oh, you need to sit in a corner and uh, hum to yourself, or I don't know, we'll say a couple of minutes, whereas it's finding like you touched upon what works for you. So what works for me, well, there might be a small percentage of that there's going to be a similarity, but in most yeah. cases there's not. And again, I think it's, you know, regardless of 
what sport you're playing. You know, if, if you're playing competitive sports, you're going to find that there's, you know, whether your routine is different or the same to the person next to you, you know, you're going to find similarities because you're competitive. You're, you know, you have that innate desire to compete and be successful and win. And I think, you know, that's what, that's what unites all athletes of all ages and, you know, all genders and all sports is just that, that desire to, to want to win and to battle and to sacrifice and what you're, you know, you're going to give to the sport. Um, but again, like you said, the routines are, are so different. And, and if, you know, if there's a, if, you know, if there's a young athlete standing in front of both of us and we both share our stories, he might, you know, I'm not familiar, let's say that with the nutritional components. And yes, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've worked with nutritionists before and I've, you know, created, you know, you know, food plans, nutrition logs, and and I'm now familiar, but your expertise in that area, he may say, wow, you know, I, I really don't eat well. And, and, you know, before a hockey game, I'm eating pizza and, and I, I can't skate out there. And so when you talk about, you know, your routine to, to get yourself in, you know, an environment conducive for a flow state or for, you know, a high performance, he may pick up and say, that's what I need. Or he may look at me and say, wait, can you teach me that breathing stuff? Because I come off the ice and I'm panting and I can't catch my breath. And then I get back out on the next shift and I'm already tired, you know? And so there's different parts of his game that, you know, I think, like you said, all athletes are different and everyone's coming from different, you know, physical and mental, you know, backgrounds. And, and I think the more we can just be open in this space of psychology and sport and, 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 you know, cross pollinating these different areas, I think that we can, you know, collectively, not just, you know, you and I, but you know, the, the bigger community is, is working, you know, to help athletes, you know, understand the importance of that mental game, because like we both agreed, if we had had this, you know, three, four, five, six years you know, before we started paying attention to it, where would our careers be? You know, what athletes will we be, what people would we be? I mean, I think you can take it down to that level of, you know, if you were to pay attention to this early on in your life, would it have shaped, you know, who you became later on? And these, I mean, they're, those are deep, you know, philosophic questions that you can, you know, ponder at another time. But I think essentially, you know, you see that, you know, psychology has such an important role in sports and whether that be nutritional or, you know, meditation or different, you know, workout routines and focusing on breath. And, you know, there's just so much that, that is behind the scenes of just, you know, showing up, putting your skates on and going and competing. And if you can really cultivate a routine that, you know, that enables you to, to, you know, perform at your best level and be a great person and a great athlete and a great teammate and do all these things, then, you know, I see the future of sport continuing to, to, to put a, a huge importance on the mental side of it and not just the physical side that I think history, you know, shows that, you know, it was, it was purely physical, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And that, you know, if someone were to say, you know, what is your pregame routine? Look, I like, have you, you know, have you, what did you eat for dinner last night? Did you focus on these specific things? You know, an athlete might laugh at you and say, you know, I just showed up today and I played the game of my life. Well, today there's, you know, the science behind it that'll say, well, actually there are things you can do and things you can eat and, you know, different routines that can, you know, 
force you in sometimes without even knowing to get into that state of, you know, of excellence. But I think you can go probably a step further, Haley, in terms of from an athlete perspective, they've got this an added tool, so to speak, because when they're growing up, they've got a role model they they want to emulate or a certain group of peers that they're going to, from a skill-based sport or whatever it may be, they're going to pick and choose different aspects from that individual. So I think it, from yeah. the mental side, um, it's a little bit like that. It's picking and choosing off how I, how, how I would generally is off a shelf. You're going to pick what well, this imaginary book off this imaginary bookcase. You're going to pick books that you, you so decide, so, so decide which will be in tune with how you are as a person and, it's probably probably get the best out of it, and it's very much I would say being looking at the similarities what you do from a, a both physical and both skill set and applying it yeah. to the mental side. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I mean to each his own, and what I mean, like we like we've agreed on so many times. What works for me isn't you know it may work for you, but it might not work for you. And you know the role models that that I look up to, um, you know, there are, there are female athletes that I aspire to be like, and there's male athletes. And then there's, you know, people that are non-athletes that I aspire to be like, and there's, you know, those are both female and male and the ages, you know, it ranges from, you know, people that are around my age and there's people that are 75 that I aspire to be like. And again, it's because of who I am as a person and what experiences in life that I've had that, you know, innate, or you know naturally draws me towards that person or that you know that psychological training or whatever it may be because of my experiences in my life and how I'm you know how I've evolved as a person and I think you know your experiences would would force you to you know be drawn to to different things and I think that's what makes that's what makes teams I think so interesting is that you have a group of 23 people that are you know, could be polar opposites. Everybody's got a different story. Everybody has a different, you know, upbringing. Everybody has a different physical, you know, body capacity. Everybody has a different mental psyche and and opinions and perspective. And then, you know, when you see those, you know, those incredibly successful organizations and teams at the end of the day, again, it's that innate desire to be successful and put the person beside you first. And, you know, and I think, the best teams in the world are, are those that it's, it's not about me. There's no ego involved. It's that selfless, you know, something bigger than myself. And my final question for you, Haley, before we wrap up the episode today, yeah. if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would okay. that be? Um, it's a great question. cultivating a routine that works for you and that maximizes your physical, your mental, emotional performance. But at the end of the day, being proud of the person you are, not just the athlete. And yeah, I mean, I think I could go on for hours. I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but I think, yeah, at the end of the day, just having, you know, being aware and and if you want to get to that level of you know high competition and, and being a you know 
a, a competitive athlete in that space, then, then really taking some time to reflect on, you know, what you're good at, what you're not good at, your strengths and weaknesses, you know, how you can improve. And the more self-aware you are, you know, the more you're going to be able to recognize those flaws or those weaknesses and build upon them and recognize your strengths and say, okay, you know, I can continue to, to grow and evolve and develop as an athlete, but, you know, off the field as a person too. So once again, Haley, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a, it's, it's been a pleasure. You are fantastic, and I'm such a big fan of the work you do. Thank you very much, and thanks for coming on. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review, as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety, and it would be more visible in future to others, and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.